Hey everyone, it's me, Ben, and I need to tell you that this episode is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash nerdistwriters for a free audiobook download. They've got all kinds of terrific audiobooks for your listening pleasure, uh, including, here are some, that are apropos to today's podcast. Uh, the Tencent Plague, The Great Comic Book Scare and How It Changed America by David Hajdu, um, is a really cool book about, you know, the pretty much what it says it is. Uh, this book was released in, I want to say, the 50s, and uh, it told everyone that if kids read comic books, they will be ruined and turn against uh, the adults and will all live in a dystopian future. Um, anyway, it's a fascinating book. It's worth downloading. Another great one on here uh, is called Comic Books, Indie and Beyond, which was recorded at the 2010 Los Angeles Times Festival of Books. Uh, and it's got Mike Mignola and Simon Oliver and uh, our friend Ed Brubaker, who appears on today's podcast. Um, once again, it's called Comic Books, Indie and Beyond. It's from the LA Times Festival of Books. It's a cool discussion about just the state of the industry uh, a couple of years ago, which is, you know, still in a lot of ways holds true. Uh, so those are two recommendations for you. Go to Audible. Dot com. That's audiblepodcast.com slash nerdistwriters for a free audiobook download. Hope you enjoy it. And now, here is this very special Nerdist Writers panel in celebration of the San Diego Comic-Con, which begins today. Now entering nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers panel on the Nerdist Podcast channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be enlightening. It's very really frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel Series, an informal chat about writing and the business and process of writing. Each and every panel benefits 826LA, the national nonprofit tutoring program. For more information on 826LA, visit 826LA.org. I'm your moderator, Ben Blacker. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage program in the style of old-time radio, available as a podcast on iTunes and via Nerdist.com. Uh, I've written for the series Super Ninjas and Supernatural. Having gotten his start writing for the Tick comic books... Our first panelists then worked for the animated series as well as other cartoons. Having come up with the concept for the series years earlier with Doc Hammer, he is the creator, writer, editor, director, and producer of the Venture Brothers as well. Yes, you're right. As well as several uh, voices on the show. Please welcome Jackson Public. Hi. In comics, our next panelist has written Batman, Sleeper, Gotham Central. He revamped Catwoman with Darwin Cook and brought depth and relevance to Captain America. <laughs> He's currently working on a number of stories in a number of different media, uh, which he'll tell you all about. Welcome, Ed Brubaker. Depth and relevance. It got me interested. That's, that's my middle name. I'm a tough sell, and it got death me interested. Death. And death as well. Okay. But that's also whatever the opposite of death is. This is like the porn version. <laughs> I want depth and relevance. Oh, no. But not read that. Girth and... Yeah. <laughs> Please. Since the late 1960s, as a writer or editor, our final panelist has had a hand in every major comic book character that you know and love. 
Uh, he co-created Wolverine, Swamp Thing, The Human Target, Nightcrawler, Storm, Colossus, Lucius Fog, Clayface 3, and many, many, many more other characters. Uh, he made Batman fight the Hulk one time. <laughs> uh, he was the editor on Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' Watchmen, has written numerous animated programs, and has been inducted to the Comic Book Hall of Fame. Welcome, Len Wein. Thank you for being here, guys. Um, let's let's get right to it. Oh boy! Um, I want to hear about. Listen, Len. Y- yes, I did. The, the internet's been lighting up about this Watchmen thing. There's a Watchmen thing. There's a Watchmen thing. Um, There's this deluxe edition of Watchmen. It's a hundred dollars. It's really an outrage. It's a little pricey. <laughs> um, whole proposal. Let's in the back. tell us about uh, this new Watchmen kind of expanded universe thing that's going on. What your involvement is? What was going on behind the scenes to finally make this happen? Because I know it's been talked about for years, hasn't it? It has. It has for almost since the beginning. Yeah. We, the op, you know Alan was constantly offered the opportunity to do more Watchmen stories if he wanted to. Uh, at first, he was enthusiastic at the thought. Then he started hating the movies being made from his work. <laughs> so he decided he wanted nothing to do with it. Uh, Did he understand that the more comic books were not movies? No. <laughs> he, you know, you have to under, if you've ever met Alan, you'll understand. Really? <laughs> yes. It's, Alan is, is incredibly talented, but... Alan, I like to refer to as someone I would not want to be trapped in an elevator with. <laughs> uh, it just got odder and odder. And eventually Paul Levitz, who didn't want to make any more waves than Alan was already making, said, just, just don't do it. Stop. Mm-hmm. Leave it alone. And then Paul moved on. Mm-hmm. And Dan DiDio and, and Jim Lee, whose job it is to make money for the company, said, this is silly. Here was a property that will make us money no matter what we do. We should be doing something with it. Mm-hmm. So they conceived the idea of Before Watchmen, which is basically everything that comes before Watchmen. <laughs> uh, as I said, I'm, I'm doing Ozymandias. I'm also doing uh, The Curse of the Crimson Corsair, which is a different pirate book than they published during those times. Okay. Uh, the last panel of Ozymandias is the first shot you see of him in the Watchmen. Oh, interesting. And it goes to there. And was that was that uh, dictated to you? Was no, this that, your that conception? was my decision. Interesting. Both cases. Did I mean, they, they the offered ending? me Ozymandias, and I, I thought he'd be the you most... just ruined the ending of your... <laughs> <laughs> no, By I the way, at the end of Watchmen, there's a big... Ma- no. <laughs> uh, no, they offered me Ozymandias, and I liked the idea of taking him because he's the spine of the whole story. <laughs> if you really get down to it, Everything that happens happens because of him, well, one way or another. What's, what's your point? He's the bad guy, of course. He's the, he's the unwritten. He's the. Yeah. He's the, 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 in a mystery story, the story you don't see is the most interesting one. Well, now you're going to see it. <laughs> <laughs> because it's really interesting. Touche. <laughs> that was easy. Uh, and in the case of, of, of the Crimson Corsair, you, they said, well, do another tale of a black freighter. And I said, well, no. <laughs> Why not? I said, the whole idea was that in this universe, superhero comics had faded pretty early on because superheroes existed for real. So that DC had gone on and done a line of super, or rather, of pirate comics mm-hmm. instead. And I said, why don't we just do one of the other pirate comics? Let's <laughs> see what else the line was like. 
And they said, oh, cool. And so that's what I'm doing. That's very interesting. What, uh, what, what was your way into this pirate comic? Because <laughs> uh, this is not like, really like anything you've written before, oh, at least in the genre. I've written a couple of pirate stories. Have you really? Back, back in the old that. mystery days when oh, I was writing really? mystery oh, stories. Yeah. Wow. I actually drew a pirate story for Gold Key. No kidding. No, yes. <laughs> but I just thought it would Did you write that too? I, well, by the time it was done, yes. <laughs> uh, but, was it uh, written by Johnny Craig originally? No, no, no. no. Okay. Johnny was a wonderful artist. And, and yeah. a great writer, too. And a great writer. Yeah. No, no, I, the, the weird part of it is, in the middle of the night, this past week, Wednesday night, I had, I had insomnia, and I'm laying there staring at the ceiling, and I said, you know, if they had a whole line of books, they were probably house ads. So I realized we're doing a final book that has the last 10 pages of the Crimson Corsair story and a number of other things. I'm frankly not sure what they are yet, what we're going to be doing. But I I said, we should do a house ad in that issue. And and so I created the entire line of books. Having nothing better to do with my time, I lay there at 3 in the morning and invented an entire line of pirate comics. (laughs) That's really fun. Yeah. Do Do they have the flavors of the, you know... DC comics that I they are the so. mirror of? I hope so. Was there a comics code authority in the Watchmen world? <laughs> uh, no, I don't believe there because, was. Because there, there was never a Dr. Wortham. Right. He was well, killed in the war. <laughs> <laughs> the well, comedian. He was killed in the time war. That was a secret yeah. mission the comedian went yes, on. Yes, he, he, he took, he took out Frederick. <laughs> <laughs> Please, uh, Ed, it's the mystery of the got too close to the truth. The, the worst part of this, of course, is now I actually really kind of want to write some of these books because they're, they're, they're all different. Absolutely. But I created the whole line of, so you'll see what they are. When, That's really cool. And you get to read. The worst part of the Crimson Corsair is <laughs> they're running. You're really selling it. Yeah. No, well, no, for me, not for you guys. Okay. For me. For you, is, it's the best part. <laughs> they're, they're running two pages in each book mm-hmm. in order. Every, not, not every title, there will be one Watchmen related book a week. Starting the first week in June. Well, your thing is two pages year. in the back of every two book. Two pages in the back of every book. So when I came <laughs> up with this... Well, that's, that's not a problem, right? Not at all. <laughs> Having to come up with 35 cliffhangers yeah. is not a problem whatsoever. <laughs> and it's, you know, I look at myself and go, what the hell did you do now? Alan Moore <laughs> would consider it a challenge. So, so did I. <laughs> And it's been working so far, actually. Two pages? Mean? My God, I would, kill, I would blow my head off. But that's, that's really the way to get everybody to buy all it's, the books, it's, though. It's why they yeah. pay me More medium bucks. Yeah. If you, want yeah. The, if you want those pirates. Yeah. And you this, want those you pirates. You gotta know how this pirate stuff ends. And if, before Watchmen sells wonderfully every issue, it will be because of the pirates. I believe it. Back, I believe and it will, re- it will spark. Maybe that whole line will... It will. <laughs> Maybe they'll hire me to edit these. <laughs> Do you really want to go back to editing? Yes, I love it. Really? Oh, I love it. Oh, my God. Why? Because you can... <laughs> Good no, I, I get it, but why? Because yeah. you control the whole package. Exactly. Oh. You're king. Yeah. You, everything gets to be the way you want it to be if you do your job right. <laughs> That's right. You control the writers, the artists, the colorists, the lettering. See, most you of the it. editors I've... I, I, no, no disparity to, to any of the editors I've worked with in comics, but the, the production cycle of comics at this point is so insane that, that a lot of the editing comes down to hiring the right people and traffic managing. Mm-hmm. You know, and then 
when the production cycle gets insane, it's hiring people and traffic managing and not always the right people. So, Well, the, the trick is to try to keep it the right people. I mean, Yeah. Well, Mike Carlin was the first editor I worked with who didn't do anything. He just said, my job, like, he didn't make notes that weren't unnecessary. Sometimes people would just rewrite word balloons for no reason. Oh, oh yeah. And, uh, and you'd be like, what... Why do you? Why did you rewrite that? And you know, I like the editors who don't feel the need to actually go in there and rewrite stuff. Um, I don't have any of those anymore. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> conveniently, prima donna. Um, <laughs> uh, it's not a clause in my contract. It's just understood. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I have always said that I, I felt I did my job as an editor best when it appeared I was doing it the least. Yeah. Which was, yeah, you hire. You must have taught Mike Carlin that. I did. He said that, actually. You hire the right people, you point them in the right direction, you get the hell out of their way. I'm not. I'm back to the porn again with this microphone, (laughs) by the way. Oh, Oh, wait, we're not doing a video podcast. Sorry. No, no. Also, for those listening on radio. (laughs) Considering the way we're dressed, thank God it's not video. Uh, One more question about this Watchmen uh, series. Besides the you know pacing of the pirate series, what's mm-hmm. been what's been a challenge in writing these? Being true to the spirit of the original material, I think, is difficult. How would yeah. you describe the spirit of the original material? Well, a guy in a blue suit with that's <laughs> the distant spirit. Uh, no, it's it's there, there's an integrity of sorts to the product that everyone wants to. Maintain. We're all in competition with each other, not to do a better job than Alan, but to do as good a job as Alan. And it's been fascinating. I have never worked with a bunch of people more excited about what they're doing, more committed to what they're doing, and, and doing as good a job as I've seen everybody doing. Are you all like scared shitless though? I mean, no, I, 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 I can am you not. Make Citizen Kane too. You know, Len created like... Wolverine. Nothing. <laughs> Also, I, I, I hired Alan, so Alan doesn't scare me. Alan never scared me. <laughs> isn't also, he, he like he also a wizard? Doesn't have a passport. Let <laughs> 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 me teleport. This is Alan. He no, can't what, teleport. What, what, after my first there are year or two, snakes in America. After my first year or two of working with Alan, when I realized, oh, every story is exactly the same, uh, I made it a lot easier to work with. Him. <laughs> oh, come on! <laughs> Go back and look. At I love for Vendetta. I'm talking about look at the. Swamp Thing. Every issue of Swamp Thing, or every story in Swamp Thing, is constructed identically. <laughs> oh, he's yeah. Well, he's very much about structure. I don't know. I, he's my favorite comic book uh, writer. I, so. I don't think there's a bit. But of... I probably write. And we all write the same story over and over again. I mean, Archie what? Goodwin taught me that. And the one, the one five, the one time I talked to him about writing. Well, Ed, basically. which which sacred cow would you like to take down today? <laughs> which sacred cow? <laughs> Boy, I don't know if I have any. What, what do you mean? <laughs> well, we've heard, the question. we've heard about Alan. Not so great. <laughs> <laughs> One no, trick pony. Nobody's, nobody's I, ever been a better wordsmith. I, mean, I, think, word no, I absolutely agree with you. I think I really he's, he's the guy whose work I always go back to the most. Right. As I think he probably, just as far as the voice of comics, uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of great people have worked in comics. I think... If you look at the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, you get these, these various people who were influential on the voice of their era. Stan Lee's voice 
mm -hmm. went from the 60s up until Alan Moore, really. And I think Alan Moore was was sort of an earthquake in, in, in mainstream comics. I mean, Lens, Len didn't have Stan Lee's voice, but when he wrote Spider-Man, yeah. you had to. Sure. I mean, you tried to. I mean, yes. everybody did. And so there was a, there was a, Alan Moore was sort of a freeing influence. I mean, I, I was reading Alan Moore before Len hired him. I was buying Warrior Magazine really? when I was in <laughs> high school. And, How did you uh, find those when you were in high school? I had... I went to every comic book store. I was a comic nerd. I, I, I would spend my afternoons, like, you know, trying to avoid bullies and going to comic book stores all over San Diego. And, and you know, I, I, there was some really good comic stores there that got, like, British imports and undergrounds. And I was reading, like, Cerebus and Warrior and what was your, Reed, Reed Fleming. You what know? was your gateway as a uh, young kid to comic books? My first comics, well, Marvel comics probably. My dad, uh, when I was like two or three, we were, my dad, uh, my brother's a couple years older, and my dad wanted us to get into reading early, and he had been a comic book guy growing up. Um, he'd, he'd, you know, he was born in the 30s, so he sort of grew up with comics his mm -hmm. whole life. Um, and he, went, he was in uh, Naval Intelligence, and he went into his office and said, hey, Danny, you guys have comics your kids don't want anymore and he just came home with this huge box of comics in like 1969 or 1970 oh. or something and uh, the first comic I can remember reading was Fantastic Four number six with like half the cover torn off and I know <laughs> what was, was some, the story was EC, it was awesome. uh, the, the Submariner and Doctor Doom team up and they send the the uh, Baxter building into outer space for, <laughs> for some reason. Yeah. It made because sense at the can. time. Right. Yeah. We can do this. It totally it out. Sense. Yeah. Yeah. Jack thought it was cool. Yeah, Jack was like, this will look awesome. <laughs> and Stan was like, I guess I can write dialogue for this. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, that, I remember reading some early Archies, some, a couple EC horror things. But, I, but really the comics that really, you know, were my my first comics I spent my own allowance on. I went to the PX in uh, Guantanamo Bay uh, in the early 70s, and I bought uh, an issue of Captain America and Marvel Premiere number 16. No it was Captain America number 256 with the wow. two caps running at each other on the cover, oh, the, cap, sure, the crazy right? cap from the 50s. And I remember it said across the bottom, two into one can't go. <laughs> Which just absolutely makes no sense. But, like, the flying building, that yeah. makes sense. I also remember yeah. the fists like like Sal Basima drew the l world's largest fists. Like they looked like they had seven fingers on each hand. I mean, you probably worked with the guy. Oh yeah, I did. Quite a bit. <laughs> Huge fists. It was the one. It was the one thing that was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But uh, yeah, those were so Captain America and Iron Fist were like my my sort of you know go to books as a kid. What was the appeal of those for you as a kid? I don't know. I mean. God, who knows? You know, I was like a four-year-old kid or five-year-old kid. Captain America, I think, was because I grew up on military bases and, you know, was around a lot of soldiers. And, and I also had my mind blown during that, you know, reading those Engelhart books as a little kid, you know, when Cap quits. And you're like, wait, America might be wrong in something? Like, I remember actually, like, which, you know, I mean, they always say, you know, oh, books can't change people. Well, they totally can. I mean, if you can, yes. if you can think a book... Who can, says uh, that? People, well, you know, whenever we're trying to defend books, oh, okay. you say, oh, it's not books, it's parenting. And it's like, well, it's books, too. If, you know, but if a, if a book can make someone better as a person, then, of course, a book could turn someone evil, too. I mean, look at the Holocaust. Look at it. <laughs> it was started no, by a book. Take a second, look. Take, yeah. just take, a, take a second. Um, <laughs> 
But uh, <laughs> so I remember reading that as a kid, and just you know, I remember when we were in first grade, Nixon was running for president against Mondale, I think, uh-huh. and and. They wanted us to get involved in politics, so the school voted. And we lived on a military base, and the teacher actually told all of us that we needed to vote for Nixon. <laughs> wow. Because if Mondale won, he was going to give Guantanamo Bay back to Castro, and we wouldn't have anywhere to live. <laughs> and I remember, oh, I'm voting for Nixon. That's the only time I've ever voted for a Republican. <laughs> but ironically, not the only time you ever voted for Nixon. No, it's weird. Exactly. That is that is weird. I did vote for money. Um, <laughs> as an independent. Were you when you were becoming aware of you know obviously when Alan Moore hit the scene you became oh, yeah. aware of who that guy was. Were you a guy who followed writers or artists? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I was from the time I was a little kid drawing and writing my. I actually started writing so that I would have things to draw. I wanted to be a really? penciler. When I was a kid, I wanted to pencil. Len, you're shaking your head. Was that what you did? That's also? exactly what I did. Really? Yeah, I was wondering because you yeah. guys did fanzines, you and Mark. Yeah, I, and all those I, I, I only that, right. That's exactly right. I, I, I only. I, wrote... I actually, in my teens, was reading interviews with Len and Marv and wishing that I had like a group of friends that we were doing fanzines together, <laughs> so that we could then like oh, infiltrate. Funny. <laughs> but, no, that's exactly how I was. I was oh. an arts major. I majored in art in high school and college. I was going to be a comic book artist. And then I brought in samples of stuff that I'd written and drawn. <laughs> and they said, you know, as an artist, you're a pretty good writer. <laughs> and so Brian I, Bendis has that same story. Yeah. When he, he, I mean, he and I both started uh, writing and drawing comics uh, for small press places. And uh, when some, Joe Quesada called him up and said, hey, we got some work for you. And he's, li- and he's like, oh, great. What book needs a penciler? And he's like... No, your art is terrible. We want you to write. (laughs) He's like, oh, well, what? (laughs) Uh, And and that was your experience, too? You did the small press? I did. I I got to a point where my my art style, you know, was at best somewhere in between, like, Archie and Archie. (laughs) (laughs) To the guy who drew Jughead and the guy who drew... I mean, if I I was... And those guys are my favorite artists, so... But I, I just... I had so many stories that I didn't have the ability to draw, actually. And I started having friends that liked the comics I wrote and drew ask me to write stories for them. And I started... Wait, this is way easier than actually drawing it. I mean, <laughs> writing it. I mean, it sure. would take me six six, less six months to draw a twenty-four page comic, and to the point where it was stopping me from writing things because I would think, well, is this story really worth spending six months of my life drawing? <laughs> I was incredibly hard on everything because I knew how fucking long it was going to take me to draw it. Sure. You know, just to use the F word because we can. Yeah. Um, I I fucking forgot that we could fucking swear on this fucking thing. Now it's going to be like in Bruges up in here. (laughs) But, uh, you know, this place is a shithole, by the way. Um, (laughs) But at least it's hot. It's hot. At least least it's hot in L.A. Um, Yeah, so, uh, you know, I started getting work as a a writer. I I remember uh, Eric Shanauer actually is sort of responsible for my whole career who does a book called Age of Bronze. How so? um, He was a guy who shopped at my comic store and I met him because I was actually a jerk bragging about Watchmen because (laughs) uh, the guy who delivered uh, 
our comics from Bud Plant was our distributor at the time, and this guy, A.G. Parr, actually delivered to San Diego, and his roommate was Howard Chaikin's assistant, uh, right. Richard, Richard somebody. I can't remember his name now. He was an amazing artist, and Howard Chaikin had gotten in his contract at D.C. when he was doing The Shadow that he got advanced Xeroxes of anything Alan Moore was working on. A number and, of us had that. Yeah, see? And so this guy's roommate was working for Chaikin, so he would Xerox shit. So we were getting Watchmen three or four months early in black and white Xeroxes. <laughs> and then there was this delay towards, like, issue 11 or 12. There was, like, a couple months where one was late. Len. And it was... It, it's Len's fault. I was no longer the editor Len, at that point, actually. Well, yeah, no, okay. Len was... Len, it was Dick Giordano. It was a total prick, by the way. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the name Dick Giordano. Yeah. Oh. Dick. No, I, I, I'm, yeah, I feel bad now. I worked with him once. He was a great guy. Dick was actually one of the nicest guys I'm just talking out my ass. Dick, Dick was the nicest guy in the world. Um, he really was. But uh, Eric came in, and he was like, oh, this one's finally out. He's like, I've been waiting for... I feel like I've been waiting forever. And I said, well, you've been waiting forever. I've been waiting five months because I got an advanced Xerox. And he said he left the store, and he was thinking... Is this guy? Like, How the fuck does this guy rate advanced Xeroxes of Watchmen? And it was like I was, you know, Chaikin actually had to stop his assistants from because it got it got around that his assistants were starting to get this shit out. So all of his assistants were cut off from the Xerox machine, which really cut down on productivity. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was so that's how Eric and I met, and we ended up becoming friends after I was a big braggy douchebag, and uh, and he was doing Ozcom. And, and he was coming up with what was going to end up being Age of Bronze, which is this brilliant uh, thing he's doing for the last 20 years about the Trojan War at Image. Um, and everybody wanted to work with Eric, and Eric didn't have any contemporary ideas. And I just, he, had, he and I had both lived in Guantanamo Bay at different times in the 70s. And I said, well, why don't we just do like a crime story that takes place there, and I'll write it, and you can draw it. And we sold it to Dark Horse just based on the fact that they wanted him to do something. And then I got to write it, and that was, like, my first real, like, paying work as a writer in, like, the... Like 1990 or something like that, and then we and got then nominated. Tom Cruise starred in it. Yes, Jack Nicholson. <laughs> that, and how it happens for yeah. everybody. <laughs> but yeah, after that, we got nominated for some awards, and and more people wanted to work with Eric, and he just said, "Well, can my friend write it?" And and I remember it was Lou wow. Stathis at uh, Vertigo, and he said, "Well, can this guy write?" And he said, "Well, he's up for the fucking Eisner Award <laughs> for, for best fucking writer," <laughs> and, and he said, well, "Yeah, but that doesn't mean anything." <laughs> Alan Moore's up for that. <laughs> he just but, writes the same story over. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's all the same. Um, well, I but, want. Let me just uh, cut in right here for a sec because I, I want to move on, but I wanted to yeah, ask please, this on. question. Um, the the crime, right? the crime stuff, uh, which is all over, you know, your your work, and it's really some of my favorite stuff that you do. Uh, where did this come from, as far as influence and interest? Oh, three things. We'll start with three. No. Um, <laughs> uh, I, my uncle was a famous uh, crime noir screenwriter, oh, wow. John Paxton. He wrote Murder, My Sweet and Crossfire oh, wow. and okay. The Wild One and On the Beach and a lot of movies. So I grew up, we would come up and visit him, and my dad was always really into these old noir films because of that. And so I grew up going to, like, noir fests. And so that was always sort of part of my worldview. And then when I was a teenager, I uh, was kind of a criminal and a drug addict and a drug dealer and a thief and uh, at one point an armed robber um, 
A lot of, a lot of bad what? shit. What? I did comics about it. It's all in there. <laughs> Low life. It's out of print. Find it on eBay. Um, but uh, that was, you know, that was sort of my life history was, you know, being a speed freak and, and yeah. stealing shit. And, you know, well, as a teenager, I mean, it's so long ago that it feels like another person, as, you know, everything always does. There'll be cops waiting at the door for you. <laughs> yeah. I, the statute of limitations is long past. But, um, but really... Uh, a lot of my early comics are about that sort of time in my life as a teenager when, you know, my friends and I in the 80s were all into, like, bands and drugs and crime and, and stuff like that. And, uh, and so that was sort of, you know, those two influences sort of combined. And I went through this weird period where I read sort of, like, every Kerouac and Bukowski, and I got to the point where I was really sick of them, but I wanted to read more stuff like that, and then someone gave me a bunch of Jim Thompson books. I'm like, oh, like, Jim Thompson is, like, Bukowski, but with a plot. <laughs> and, and that sort of sparked my interest in trying to write that stuff, and, I, and I'd always read a lot of true crime and, and stuff like that. Like, the story that Eric and I did for Dark Horse uh, was called An Accidental Death, and parts of it were based on an actual crime that happened in Berkeley when I was living there about a guy who may or may not have murdered his girlfriend while she was jogging and then came home and had, came back and had sex with her corpse later. Um, as you do. Sure. I mean, it's totally oh, normal man. if you're going to murder your girlfriend while jogging. While you're um, there, sure. Yeah, well, I mean, come on, she was hot. Uh, yeah, this is like so. But he said Alan Moore writes the same story over and over. I just want to say, I would like to no, point no. out that I am not the Forget most. Forget yeah. We're on to corpse fucking. Yeah, we're, we're on to corpse fucking. So I don't know if it was actually. But but uh, so those were just always fascinations of mine. And, and honestly, when I started doing, you know, work that I was getting paid to do. It was, you know, crime story related stuff and I didn't actually think that I could write superheroes or anything like that. I was trying to figure out how I would have a career as a writer if I didn't break in as a screenwriter immediately or sell an option on, you know, a book which, you know, we could have done had, you know, various people not been running those companies. Um, we'll get to that in question three. Uh, if we get to question three. Yeah, probably we'll we won't. We, we, he hasn't even had a question yet. Hi, Chris. Hi. Yeah. Um, let's talk about... Uh, you You have a background in comic books as well. A little bit, yeah. Uh, that was sort of... But wasn't that sort of your breakthrough as a writer uh, to the public anyway? Yeah, yeah. Sure. How'd that and come I, about? Exactly like them. I wanted to be a penciler when I was oh, really? good. And I actually... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to the extent that I did really shitty in the last couple of years of high school, even though I was a bright kid and whatever, uh, I, because I was going to go to the Joe Kubert school. Oh, me too. And I was like, <laughs> fuck it, I'm going there. I don't care about my SATs. I'm not going <laughs> to take that crap. Um, How'd that work out? I quit on the second day. <laughs> really? Of the, of the yeah, yeah. You actually went? I went. I went. Oh, I, wow. And I, I actually just last week finally threw out my big plastic portfolio that you get when you... <laughs> Oh. First, get all your stuff. It was a little sad. What, why did you? What year were you going to go there? This was uh, eighty nine. Oh wow! Okay. Why yeah, did I you got quit? accepted in eighty for eighty five, and I didn't. I chickened out yeah. because I was like, I didn't want to move from San Diego to New Jersey. When yeah, I was like seventeen. I was old. living in New Jersey, yeah. and oh, I was. Uh, I that's why did you kinda quit? I quit. Um, well. All Cubert uh, started up maybe two weeks after all my high school friends started college, mm-hmm. and I had a girlfriend at the time. I went and visited her down at Rutgers, and I looked around. And I went, "Oh, <laughs> you know, like it just seemed <laughs> yeah. seemed like an okay." Idea. For whatever reason, I thought 
all colleges cost twenty thousand dollars a year at the time. I mean, now they do, but uh, <laughs> now it's. I really more. was now ignorant like of what <laughs> college cost, and like we didn't have any money really. Cubert was maybe five grand or, okay. or something at the time. Um, yeah, it was like eight. Like eight, all eight, in with your yeah yeah yeah. So um, so between that and. Uh, you know, living ten minutes away, like, and it just kind of all hit me on the first day. I got super depressed. I went, "Oh, wait a minute! I'm gonna stay living at my parents' house for the next three years and drive ten, fifteen minutes to the school to learn uh, how to draw comic books, and then I'm gonna go to work at the comic shop after." And I just like my whole world just got really tiny all of a sudden, Aww. and uh, my eyes got wide, and I went, "Yeah, no." How many you know. girls were at the Kubert School on your first couple of days there? Were there any? I don't. Class? I think there were like maybe two. Shanauer had like two or three in his graduating class. Yeah. I think he was in the second graduating class. Another reason to go to Rutgers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so I, I uh, quit and my uh, I had to go work at UPS for a while because <laughs> wow. like I couldn't get into sure. uh, you know another school until the next right. semester. So I went to community college for a while and then did well at that and just figured I'd learn comics on my own, yeah. I guess, while just learning other stuff to fill Which seems with. feasible. I mean, yeah. uh, presumably and you had even, been a uh, comics even fan. their kind of orientation speech was like, you know, we're not going to teach you anything you can't learn, but the whole point is to condense like 10 years of experience into a concentrated thing, mm-hmm. you know. Otherwise, you can learn this on your own, but it'll take you a long time, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, I was willing to take that chance, and <laughs> I've never, I, you know, I didn't become a penciler anyway. So right. <laughs> did you ever publish anything? Yeah. Well, that's that's what was cool. My um, my boss at the comic shop was kind of really disappointed that I quit the school, and like, I, you know, there was a really supportive group of regular customers and everything who were all rooting for me huh. to go pro and stuff, <laughs> and uh, and so he was really cool. Like, I started sending samples out. Like, I had come up with this idea for this. Uh, probably Flaming Carrot-influenced thing called <laughs> Cement Shoes. And I was sending it out to a bunch of different companies, and he was like, tell you what, if nobody wants it, I'll publish it. Wow. So, my Yeah, so the comic shop dude and his high school buddy who worked in a print shop, like... Awesome. That's great. We self-published this thing, and we did, like, two issues, and... Um, that's how I ended up at a comic convention and meeting Ben Edlund because it was very tick-like. Well, I was going to say, he did. That's, he sold all, the first uh, issues of The Tick were all sold through the comic store. He yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. I mean, they, beca- they became still, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, a love publisher them, and still yeah. are. Well, that's how we heard about it when I was working at a comic store, and The Tick was this thing that they'd sold thousands of them through this one comic store. And I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> we can do that? I started printing my own comics <laughs> and selling them <laughs> comic store. I didn't sell thousands. Uh, so, so this was uh, you wrote and penciled this uh, yeah, self-published and comic, really badly inked and lettered. And <laughs> yeah, it was, it was bad looking stuff, but um, uh, there were enough good jokes in it, I guess. And um, Ben recognized the smell of the same yeah. kind of sensibility <laughs> and stuff. It was a superhero parody thing, and so he was like, "Hey, this is pretty good." And I was going to I was going to Rutgers by that time, and he sent me a letter after the convention, going, "Hey, well, we're you know we want to do some other spinoff." Tick Comics, I think the animated series was about to get underway, and they knew that he'd be pulling away a little bit, and they needed some spin-off. Yeah, I didn't realize he stuff. was still so involved with the comic, even once the animated show started up. Uh, it, well, I mean, were they just kind of running things and saying, here's what the plan is, and we need to make more, because now people will know about... Yeah, and I, I mean, I guess... Um, 
I mean, I guess he was into it, into the idea of like, oh, yeah, let's do the Chainsaw Vigilante and let's have somebody keep the tick in print. And mm-hmm. um, he fully intended to go back and do the yeah. whatever, the 12th issue, 13th? Anybody know that one? 13th? 13th. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so the series they put me on, the whole idea of it was, okay, in the 13th issue, the tick disappears into a closet for five minutes. And when he comes out, he's been on this... <laughs> bizarre adventure that maybe took a year or something but was instantaneous so that was my crappy mandate for uh-huh. the series that I did so that like you know started us off on like oh it's got to be kind of you know uh, time travel interstellar whatever and so and I, I kind of hate that stuff And but I <laughs> so I wrote some not great stories um, what, what was the stuff that you liked either you know in comics or out of comics that you were into um you know like on the on the humor side, I was just discovering. Um, well, I mean, I was really into like Flaming Carrot. I was into the weirder kind mm-hmm. of stuff, um, and I was just starting to discover like Dan Clowes and everything. That was like huge. That was kind of co- that changed my drawing style, changed my idea of what I could call a comic book, you know, um, because I, I kind of knew I would never have the drawing chops to like do a serious superhero comic <laughs> and I was maybe getting out of them at the time uh, but on that end I was super into you know Frank Miller and, and stuff mm-hmm. like that you know did you like neat stuff the early Peter Bag book no because I could not stand his drawing stuff like oh, I, wow. I never liked extra cartoony looking stuff you know I got oh, wow. into hate after oh, yeah. but I always thought neat stuff was the shit I, I, I like hate but neat no. stuff was but his art is really bizarre yeah I and mean, it's like yeah, yeah. You, it's, you, it's, yeah, it's sort of like angry Mad Magazine yeah. or something. And I just, I, I couldn't get around that at the time. Like, I grew to like it later. I was like um, Studs Kirby, the angry I listened to Evan Dorkin a lot. Actually, oh, yeah. that was Dorkin. kind of a big, a weird big influence on me because that was kind of when I discovered black and white <laughs> indie comics in a way. I like, found oh, yeah. one of his two-page strips and I Xeroxed it and put it up in my locker <laughs> and everybody thought it was just the weirdest, funniest thing, you know. Um, was that milk and cheese? Yeah, it was like a super early milk and cheese. And, um, oh, and that's what kind of turned me on to some of these other things. And I got, like, somebody gave me the, like, um, the Matt Groening Life and Hell books oh, for yeah. Christmas that year. And, yeah, suddenly I went, oh, newspaper comic strips suck and they could be this instead. <laughs> and so, like, in my high school newspaper, it changed what I started doing, you know, in those comic strips. And I was doing comic strips in my college paper and everything. And it, that stuff, you know, made me go, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do, I don't want to be a successful syndicated comic strip guy. And I don't want to be uh, a superhero comic guy. I want to, you know. I'd probably suck at those things anyway. So <laughs> I started kind of doing my own thing. And, you know, and so, in, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, in, in approaching those first Tick comics, mm-hmm. um, which you were writing and or drawing? I was writing, they, weirdly, they were like, hey, your pencils aren't really strong enough <laughs> to do <laughs> the, the drawing, but you can do the covers. That, yeah, was, really? that was weird. Really? So I did, the, I did yeah. <laughs> That's the so opposite. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes. That so against, I wrote, yeah. Well, wait. There was a rule. Well, it was like a '70s thing. If the cover was great, the art inside would suck. And if the cover <laughs> sucked, it would be like George Perez inside. Yeah. You know, like that was kind of. Did you guys do that on purpose? Yeah. We just won the fucking. Iron Fist was like that. Iron. Yeah. The covers were better than right. Well, 
John Byrne or no, it was like the other way the, around. Yeah, John Byrne. They was, wouldn't let was the dude kind of, do that was, inside. That's my dude. favorite John Byrne stuff. Is the, the I think that was during an era where Gil Kane drew all the covers too. So yes. you really have to mm-hmm. not like Gil Kane to say that. <laughs> What's wrong? I don't know. With I, you? Just got yeah, the, <laughs> I just got Gil, the essential thing, and I'm reading it. I'm going. They never let this guy do the covers. Yeah, there was a period where there's some really bad covers on Iron Fist. I have to say, <laughs> I was our our whole goal when we got Iron Fist. I fraction I talked about it, and we just wanted to do one more issue than Byrne and Claremont had done. That was How many our did old, they do? They did 15. We wanted to do 16. That was, <laughs> that was lofty goal. As long as we lasted, because no other Iron Fist run had ever gone that long. <laughs> wow. And we were just right. like, I just want to beat John Byrne one time, because he's such a jerk. <laughs> yeah, and I apologize. Was, my run was an issue, I think. Is that yeah, an issue. Yeah, you did an issue, yeah. right? Yeah, I did. Premiere? The, the second half of the origin. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's the first comic I bought. Marvel <laughs> premiere number 16, drawn by Larry Hama. Yep. Holy shit. We've been sitting here this whole time, and I had no fucking clue. You owe me 20 cents. I owe you. <laughs> what, what's the deal with Iron Fist? I like Iron Fist. What, why, what attracted you? He did Kung Fu. He was a Kung he looked, Fu. It's still in a comic book, though. He looked cool. cool. He looked yeah. cool when I was young enough. His weird little outfit with the weird booties where yeah. I guess Gil Kane thought he was drawing kung fu shoes and he drew ballet slippers accidentally. Yeah, his little, his <laughs> that was, King that was the other thing. I wanted, to, I wanted to redeem Iron Fist by giving him a new outfit. And then they <laughs> promptly turned that outfit that David Aja and me and Fraction like went over for months till we got it exactly perfect. They, he now wears that exact outfit, but they've changed it to white for some reason. Yeah, like, I, why is it white? Iron Fist is... I'll bet is, there's a reason... There was like a story. Does everybody know? There's a story reason, yeah, but I don't yeah, care. It's green and yellow in my yeah. mind. John Byrne apparently always thought it was brown and yellow because he's colorblind. Oh, great. Right. Yeah. Please. But you, yeah. You well, like that explains it the Arthur and Treacher and is green and yellow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just, yeah. Wait, Len, say that on the mic. Yeah. I said that explains the brown and orange Wolverine outfit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so only someone colorblind. <laughs> yeah, but Shaken's colorblind too, and he's a wonderful colorist. So who knows? Well, take, fine. Isn't take Tim that, Sale John Byrne. <laughs> um, wait, I, I apologize Sale? for not knowing. I think he's just blind. No, oh, wow. it's going to make a really <laughs> awful. Ed, I apologize for not knowing, but did you complete more? Uh, we did. Well, I stayed on for 15 issues in Fraction, and Aja did issue 16, which oh. I feel like I worked on because it was exactly <laughs> what I wanted it to be. I was like the editor. Oh, I basically, see. I put those two people in a room and said, and you were this with is what them Iron Fist should then. be, and then they did like the best issue of Iron Fist ever. <laughs> and then uh, it went on for a few issues after that oh, okay. by other people. But, oh, we, but our, our, our group had fallen apart. <laughs> we were like the Beatles of Iron Fist. Wow. <laughs> okay. Or, or, monkeys, maybe. or wait, wait, the wait. small faces of Iron Fist. <laughs> who, who was the Yoko in that case? Uh, yeah, like I don't know. I, David Aja had a kid and could never meet deadlines after that. Uh, <laughs> so that baby was yeah, the Yoko baby. We named Yoko Aja. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, I was going to ask, uh, Chris, in writing those first Tick comics, right. uh, which was uh, you were writing and not illustrating, uh, was there a sharp learning curve involved there? I don't I Had don't you scripted stuff before, uh, or were you just kind of drawing to... I, yeah, I just wrote and drew my own crap. Yeah. You know? When you wrote your stuff to draw yourself, did you write a script first, or did you just write and draw oh, at the same time? No. Yeah, I, I oh, wow. Just... I always wrote a script first for some reason. So, But these these ticks, you actually had to script, obviously. I th- yeah, I did. And I so... did. I actually had to type and everything. I remember that now. Yeah, <laughs> super old typewriter. Um, 
Yeah, because it was the first time I had an editor also, mm-hmm. or, you know. Yeah. They're not really editors, but they, it was like somebody <laughs> that you have to turn it into. <laughs> you were, yeah, yeah, literally you were, edit. Yeah. There's just somebody you have to turn it into, and they yeah. go, uh, okay. You were answering you know, to someone there. I, I can't um, even remember. I really don't remember much of the process at all. It was so wow. long ago, <laughs> and it was, you know, like, like my 20. first summer living off campus in college and uh, my roommate was a drug dealer so <laughs> I, I wasn't was quite as bad near in New Jersey. <laughs> I wasn't as bad as you but it was like the, you know, the first summer of going hey there's other things in life than my torquey little comics armed uh, robberies yeah. armed robberies Arm sex yeah. Um, yeah. Well, then, so. well then we'll move on from to answer my question uh, Ed you you did script stuff that you were drawing yourself? Yeah, I always in my in a notebook by hand. I didn't have to type. Okay. I, I remember having to type with the same thing. I had to like borrow an electric typewriter from someone to write my first scripts because Dark Horse wanted to actually see what I was writing. And I was like, oh, that's appalling. <laughs> I should just be able to give this straight to Eric. I remember like, and then and then having to wonder like, well, what do what do comic scripts look like? And the Comics yeah. Journal had printed like. A few pages of an Alan Moore script, oh which is always God. the worst thing. <laughs> Whenever someone says wait, that wait, wait, now, wait. I'm like, "Oh, you poor fool!" Because <laughs> yeah, well, Alan yeah. Moore scripts are 150 pages for 20-page comic, right? Yeah, Lenny, yeah. tell us about that. You clearly <laughs> have something to say. He actually had three mailmen die. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, just, just you know, appalled. He, he's doing the Watchmen. Every page, in essence, is a nine-panel grid. And every one of the nine panels is done in the most remarkable detail. There's an uh, ashtray on the table, three-quarters of the across the room, with two cigarette butts. One's a lucky strike. The other was, you know, he whatever. He basically drew it with words, right? Like yeah. He did, I mean, I mean there was, he did the composition, Yes, too, I mean, right? he would do all of this. Yeah. He would describe it in, in the most meticulous detail. And then in the description of every single panel with, but if it doesn't work for you, just do whatever the hell you want. <laughs> After a, literally a page, I remember yeah. the, pa- the the first panel of Watchmen, which is blood running on a a smiley face thing in a gutter. Well, I just did the whole panel right there. Like Perfect. that's all you need to do. That's it. And, but it was a single fucking page of of like single spaced type all and caps. typed to the edge of the paper. Yeah, there was no border. He would just type right across. Stop. Pick up, pick. Oh, that's crazy people typing. Yeah. <laughs> that's Kerouac. Yeah. That's Kerouac. Had we but, had we but known yeah. then what we know now. <laughs> Dear God. Uh, so this was your introduction to comic scripting? <laughs> well, I, wasn't, I didn't go that far because I thought, well, Eric knows. I also, because I was writing and drawing my own stuff, I knew the most fun part of doing comics is actually the storyboarding part of the layouts mm-hmm. of the, the composition of each panel, where the shapes are going to go. And I remember in the early days, I would actually I would type the script, and then I would make a little comic book size grid at the bottom of the page, and just do the grid structure of how I saw it. Like three panels on the first tier, one tier for the second, you know, mm-hmm. like full tier for the next. And I would do that. And after a while, I remember Michael Lark, I think halfway through scene of the crime, said, "Can you please stop doing that?" <laughs> and I said, "Why?" And he said, "Because it gets in my head, and then I can't. If I want to do a four tier page, I can't. You know, it's like it's in my head." And that you're taking away all the fun. Did they just the say action? good? Yeah. I mean, I'm like the it's Michael Mann of, you know, it's not supposed to be fun. It's work. You're getting paid for it. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, but I, I will always, you know, even in my head, I still, 
every script I write, I still on on whatever page I'll tell the artist what's going to be the full tier or the big mm-hmm. panel because well, you know, the, you yeah, the to, big you panel especially, yeah. yeah. But I don't. Yeah, but I never would go like you know. He's in the foreground, like the the amount of detail, and then you see like Eddie Campbell and Dave Gibbons would show you what the pages would look like when they actually sat to draw them. They would take that Alan Moore script and they would, I think Gibbons highlighted the two sentences in each panel description he needed, and Eddie Campbell actually just blacked out everything (laughs) except for the like part because he didn't want to have be all. He's like, oh, they're riding a carriage in the street. Okay, he'd black out everything but that, and you know. And it was like, I mean, they're really his communication to the artist. And that's, that's the interesting thing about comic scripting compared to writing a novel or a screenplay. I mean, you're really writing something to your artist. <laughs> and you have to communicate it effectively to them. You consider them the audience. Yeah, they're your first reader, yeah. really. You know, unless you have an editor right. who reads stuff before the artist. But that never happens. <laughs> I gotta have um, none of my editors are listening to this. <laughs> what are the chances? What are, yeah. Uh, they have no time. They have like 19 books a month to edit. Right. <laughs> Len, how did you learn that uh, language of story scripting or comic book scripting? I... Yes, I was self-taught. I don't recall seeing very many scripts yeah. before I started that. There, well, there really wasn't all that much before I started that. Yeah, I was going to say, what, how many comics was DC publishing when you got there? Oh, 12, 15 a month. 12, 15 a month. Wow. And that, when was that? That was like early 70s, late, late 60s? 60s. Late 60s. And was that sort of a Didn't dry time? Didn't you guys time? take over Teen Titans? Yes, yeah. for, for an issue. Just an issue? <laughs> well, we were supposed to take it over for a longer issue, but Marv and I had done a story that introduced the first black superhero to the DC universe, and they panicked. Who was that? Uh, it was well, his the original character it was this was, black guy who hated Jews. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, Sounds like an awesome know, character. Of a time coming Complex. up with a chess symbol. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, no, it was a character called Jericho, a yeah, name Marv later used for a whole different character. Yeah. And, and, and Nick Carty. Oh, yeah, Nick Carty did the art. It was oh, beautiful. Man. He's the greatest. The art was spectacular. And we did the first issue and we were finished. And then Carmine Infantino saw it and said, We can't do this. We may offend some of our, our retailers down south. Oh, wow. And so they made us try to rewrite it over the weekend, which we couldn't do. And Neil Adams, who was at the height of his power, said, give it to me, I'll fix it. And so Neil kind of went and rewrote our whole story. Huh. But we got sort of blacklisted because of that. Jeez. I had just yeah. been given uh, Tomahawk and the Challenges of the Unknown and Metal Men to write. Marv had something else. And they, had all, they all got pulled before we even got a chance to do them. Wow, really? The whole human metal men, there was a little section, if anybody remembers that book, Towards Its End, yeah. where they all got secret identities. That was all my stuff. Really? But uh, most of them never saw print with my name on it. So Marv left the industry, decided to become an art teacher, mm-hmm. moved to Lake Ronkonkoma, New York. Most of it was fun to say, I think. <laughs> uh, and I went down the block to Gold Key. Yeah, and they were in a kind of staid old company, but they <laughs> they were a comic book company. And I went in. I had a meeting with Wally Green and Paul Kuhn, his assistant, who were both lovely gentlemen. And uh, I said, "Hi, my name is Len Wein. I'm, I'm a comic book writer, and I would like to write for you folks." And their response to me was, "I'll never forget this." They looked at me and they said, "You're not going to put the black people in it, are you?" No. <laughs> but, but what they said to me was, "In God's name, why?" <laughs> in God's name, really? why? Yes. It's Gold Key in 1968. 68. And I said, oh, oh, I, like, "I like your books." Yeah, I, you I write for them. I wrote the Twilight Zone. I, I was wrote Star say, Trek. Zone, didn't you? Oh my God! I wrote I Star wrote Trek for them for several years. I wrote. Were they uh, doing those robots? Yeah. Mod wheels, all kinds of books. <laughs> 
Uh, Car- with Alex Toth? Yes. You worked with Alex Toth? Wait. Oh, yeah. oh my God. What, what is possibly the concept of mod wheels? <laughs> it's exactly they like mod open. wheels, except cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to have like cool, cool outfits when you play with them. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> but the funny thing was, when I picked up mod wheels, the cast of characters was virtually identical to the, cup, the cast of characters in Hot Wheels. So I made a couple of minor adjustments, added the characters who were missing, and just continued writing like it was the same book I'd been doing before. <laughs> That's great. It drove them crazy because uh, I knew the business better than they did. I knew the artists and such. And so I got the first issue of Mod Wheels in, and I said, oh, it's great. You know, you've got... Uh, Jack Abel is penciling for you guys. And they said, no, that's, 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 that's Sal uh, Trapani, who was Dick Giordano's brother was doing it. I said, no, no, no it's not. I, I, he's inking it, but it's being penciled by, 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 Dick, uh, by Jack Abel. And they said, I said, look, I'll bring Jack Abel in with me next week. I'll show you. <laughs> so I came in the next week and introduced them. And, you know, they understood. They looked at the work with Jack's own work. And, oh, what's lovely. And they started hiring Jack on his own. So I did the next issue of Mod Wheels. And the art came in and said, oh, Jack Sparling's working for you now. And they said, no, I'll never mind. Bring him in. So, so I brought Jack in, and then Jack Sparling started working for them. Wow. And then I got a phone call from South Japan going, you're fucking me up. Stop it. And I said, stop hiring other pencilers. Draw it yourself. That's what they're hiring. He was, you were getting all this ghost work? Yeah. That's awesome. That's crazy. Wow. It was all fun. <laughs> they come to trust me. I was. I was. So that was like the. Was that the? That's like the tail end of Gold Key. As a yeah, it really was. It was in, the, had... in their last like maybe five years. But they trusted me. I was designing covers for them. You know, sketches which were being painted by I just blanked on his name. But the wonderful painter who painted most of their oh, covers. Yeah, yeah they I completely revamped Star Trek because whoever had been writing it had never really watched the show. <laughs> and I watched the show and I said, no, no, they don't have backpacks. Spock back was constantly crying. They don't have. <laughs> so I, I got. You know, Star Trek online. This is this Kirk, is Star Kirk Trek. and Spock rarely had sex with each other. Right? <laughs> well, I kept that. I thought that was interesting. Red shirts are winning all the time. Yeah, red, red shirts are coming back. It was a lot of work. And they all went down. They're all, hey, we're all wearing red for this album. Yes, you know, the rocket movie. exhaust does not come out of the... <laughs> <laughs> Everyone can hear you scream in space. Yeah, and, and I think whatever I told them, I mean, it was, they're fine. That's what, so wait, it. did you go from Gold Key then to Marvel? I went from Goldkey back to DC. I, one of the other reasons we were fired is that somebody had been stealing original artwork. And it was assumed, since we were the youngest guys there, Marv and I, that we were the only ones who would care about it. And we all know who it is. Yeah. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Oh, really? Was oh, okay. He did plenty of that. It's a good yeah, thing you yeah. didn't say that on, I know. on Mike. Yeah, he did it at Marvel. No, it was, yeah. it was one oh, of the old DC... <laughs> Legendary, but unrecorded history. One of the old editors at DC who was having an affair and was putting the money Oh, that you could say on that. No, 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 Gil. He wasn't fucking a corpse. Gil Kane was legendary. He's gone now for stealing artwork because he was always in debt to somebody and behind the Were you there the time that Gil let us print it first? Yes, exactly. John Verport, and God rest him, big bear man, was at Church of Production. Walks in to see uh, Gil sliding up an issue of something into his portfolio, and it hadn't been printed yet. It was Barry Smith. It was a Barry Smith. It was yeah. a Barry Smith Conan. And, 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 and John, who was a 6'8", an opposing man, looked at Gil and said, Gil, look, I understand your problems, and we're not crazy about what you're doing, but can we at least publish this one first? <laughs> 
and go, oh, oh sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Comics was such a more interesting industry back when it was all stationed in New York. Oh, sure. God, it was, it, was, it was the Wild West. It was. I, it was. I loved working in comics. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we closed down more companies. Not like... We're still trying. Well, there was a famous day. I hired Jim Shooter as an assistant. Oh. Well, I, I, yeah, I'm going to hell when I die. I've got it nailed. I understand. <laughs> and, and there was more dick measuring going on between me and Jim than anyone else in the business. And one day we're in. And this is just about the size of their dicks. <laughs> Remarkably enough. One day we're in, in the production department right outside of my door as editor in chief, and we're Indian wrestling, Jim and I. You know, when you put your feet against each other. At Marvel. You put your feet against one another's feet, and you grab each other's arm, and then you try to throw each other off balance. And the rest of the editorial staff had circled us. They were all kind of watching what's going on. And as we're doing this, all of a sudden, we lurched to one side. And we hit poor Roger Stern, who was not a large man. Roger was a slight person. Jim is eight foot five. And Roger got airborne. Roger got knocked off his seat, sailed across the room, out the production room door to the wall, which was right across to the wall, down, spread eagled out. At the precise moment, Stan was leaving the office for the day. <laughs> so Stan doesn't break stride. Stan steps over Roger's semi-conscious body, glances into the room, sees me and Shooter still at, and goes, stay alive, men, and goes home. <laughs> that, that, that's one of my, my, my second favorite Marvel story is I was editor-in-chief, and I had come out to California for one of my first conventions, and I had gone to Disneyland for the first time. And I went, well, you can't come back and not give people gifts. <laughs> so I had Mickey Mouse hats made up for the entire editorial staff, you know, with their name on the back, stitched. <laughs> and I handed them out that day. And so the entire production department is working, sitting there diligently doing the jobs, all wearing Mickey Mouse ears. <laughs> Who knew years later this would yeah. be? A- the irony of and, it. <laughs> and Stan leaves for the day. And Stan, this was all you could hear it. Stan goes past the door, and you can hear the double take. Almost. What? <laughs> and all of a sudden this happens. And Stan looks in, sees what's going on to confirm he had seen what he had seen. And I go to tell him, he says, no, don't tell me. I don't think I want to know. <laughs> just left the office. <laughs> I leave the entire editorial staff sitting there with mouse ears doing the thing. Oh that was a, a DC we used to... Get, uh, Neil Adams got him to let us all work late when he was working. Because that's the only way Gil made his deadlines. Gil had the group, the Krusty Bunkers, as we were all called, who were his assistants. We'd fill in blacks and fill in stars. And you were whatever. one of the Krusty Bunkers? Too? Briefly. Oh, my I, God. I one of the, <laughs> And Were you part of Manny Hands? No, no, no. Okay. I was one of the Krusty Bunkers, briefly. <laughs> Manny and, Hands was a Marvel version. And of we would Bunkers. all just work. And the, the D.C. editorial offices were on the same floor as the accounting department. So there's the loonies here and the business people here. And we decided to start playing, I think it was contact wrestling. And <laughs> So we were all running around the office at 3 in the morning or something, because we're all a little nuts at this point, you know, hiding behind other people's desks. And, <laughs> and finally, Neil and I met each other. We caught, and he started grappling, and the two of us were wrestling and trying to figure out who's... And we lost our balance and went right through one of the cubicle walls, leaving an oh us-shaped hole. Jesus. 
At which point we looked. Oh, it's fun. We should go home. And, uh, we should just measure our dicks and be done with it. Yeah. And and we keep hurting uh, so we, people. And remarkably enough, the following Monday, there was a new edict. The following Monday, the new edict was, um, no one's allowed in the office after hours anymore. We don't know what happened. We don't think we want to know what happened, but we don't want it to happen again. DC was always much more pranky than Marvel when I was working at DC. I wasn't working at the office, but I, when I was working for DC, I would always hear these crazy stories when I was, I was writing uh, Gotham Central and Catwoman. Uh-huh. I remember Shrek came back from a vacation, and his entire office, like they had moved everyone else's furniture into his office and <laughs> piled it high. So he opened his office door, and that was it. <laughs> and he just was like, oh. All right. <laughs> and went over and saw that all the offices around him had nothing in them except a chair and a guy with a laptop. <laughs> what, uh, what's the atmosphere at the big companies these days? Uh, you guys can both speak to this. Sheer terror. Yeah. Right? I don't know. Well, they're real uh, businesses. You know? Yeah, I mean, it is. Uh, I mean, I haven't been out in a year. Uh, you know. But I, even working for them in the capacity that you do. I mean, you're still contracted to Marvel, right? Uh, sort of. Um, <laughs> that doesn't sound complicated. Yeah, no. It, it's. I mean, I don't do as much work for them as I was a year ago or a couple of years ago. I'm sort of, you know, getting to the point where you know I can't keep up the the schedule, and I have outside comics work that I'm pursuing that that uh, I've been wanting to pursue for a long time, and you know, and so I'm sort of having to lighten my comics load to be able to do that because you you're not dealing drugs write. again, are you? <laughs> Only in comics, uh, um, but you can't do five comics a month and, and have time to write screenplays or TV pilots or, or any of that stuff. You know, I mean, I've I've turned down a lot of work over the over the last you know five or six years, and I've gotten to the point where I was kind of like, well, you know, I'd like to actually pursue this stuff. So you know, I've basically lightened my load a lot. Um, but the 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 I mean, honestly, the the tone. At, I don't know. I haven't been at DC for a while, but I've talked to friends who work there, and it doesn't sound like it's much different. They're putting out, you know, the, their editorial staffs are overburdened. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all handling, you know, it's the typical corporate thing. You know, you get rid of people to, and everybody else takes on more work. You do more for less. I mean, it's Marvel's been there, you know, probably ten times in its existence. Mm-hmm. I'm sure, you know, five years from now, Marvel will have a lot more staff, and you know, it's just it's an ebb and flow with comics. It seems like it always does. You know, people say comics are at this low point now, and I'm like, well, when I got into comics, comics were selling exactly what they're selling now, and then they went through this boom. And you know, I mean, the best-selling comics now are still selling better than the best-selling ones in 1999. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I remember when because when of all Grant, the movies, you think? I, like, I think just because it's like the culture at large gives a bigger, bigger shit. Yeah, I, I I don't know honestly why. I, I try not to think too far outside of my own books. But I just remember when I was working at DC, it was a huge deal when uh, Grant Morrison's first issue of JLA came out because it was the first book that they'd had that broke 100,000 in a certain number of years. And I was just like, wow, I had no clue. And, you know, Marvel at that point had three or four books up near there. But, I mean, it, I the, the sense I get from, you know, my friends who work at DC is, you know, there's a, the editors are stressed out. Sales aren't as good as everybody would like them to be overall, and you know it's it's a market that's constantly you know trying to put out new material and everybody trying to do the most sure. that they can with the least that they've got. Mm-hmm. So it's a tough industry, you know. But the great thing is, like, 
comics is still selling about what they were 10 years ago. You can't sell it, say that for books, you know? Like, I think the fact that comics audience is so tied to the collector's market and people having grown up wanting these things, you know, the kind of comics that Marvel and DC publish that a lot of the other people publish, it's just not the same experience reading it on your iPad for people, you know, of a certain age or older. Like, mm-hmm. I, I read comics on my iPad if I can't find it or something and I really want to read that thing. But I don't feel the yeah. same sense of... You know, it's part of the the paper part of comics is part of the enjoyment of yes. it. Yes, you know, and the smell of old paper. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I love you know reading reading comics. It's one of the things I probably haven't gone a week in my life without reading a comic. They do pile one. up though, don't they? Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. I've stopped keeping my monthly comics about twice a year. I just get I just find friends who want That's to good. you know. I, but I've been doing that for like ten years now. I haven't been really. I I, I collect the trade paperbacks and the hardbacks. You know, but I'm a book collector. You know, I was raised by a book collector. I assumed as a kid that you went to anyone's house and all their walls were made of bookshelves full of books because that was my house. You know, and I remember every time we had to move, my mom just cursing my dad. But you know, now I get it. It's like, oh yeah, moving's a huge hassle when you have mostly books. To They're move. very, very heavy. Yeah. Uh, all right, I, I can't believe we're we're we've used up this much time already. Um, but we got to go down the line and talk about the things that. Let's face it, we're all here to talk about. Um, let's talk about the Venture Brothers. I don't care for it myself. Uh, but I, I don't. I personally have. It's, I find it distasteful. <laughs> it's just. I think it is. It is. I mean, uh, animation is where, so over. Yeah. Where did this? Where did it's this come from? Not the same on your iPad. No. <laughs> where did it, come from? it actually is. Yes, it is. Exactly. How did, it looks great on the iPad. Actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. no. right. uh, how did it develop? Uh, how did you guys sell it? Tell me about that. Uh, what was that? How did, it was actually it was of time. super easy to sell. I have to. I mean, I was uh, either it was I wrote an awesome pilot script or uh, my timing was it was a little of everything. <laughs> like I, I wrote I just I, it just kind of clicked with me. I had dicked around with some notes for these characters for a long time. Um, tried to start a couple of comic stories that started getting too long, and so I put them aside because I was just supposed to do like six pages for an anthology my friends were doing um and it would be oh this would be 18 pages and i will never draw it you know um and i'm not i wasn't really good enough like i had been out of practice i think so uh so i had a bunch of notes and then just like kind of one night i just went oh wait a minute this all kind of goes together like i just put the two or three stories together and just started typing in final draft and I like I, I banged it out in like four nights. And at the time, I was pitching something else with a friend of mine that was getting turned down slowly. <laughs> and they were like, uh, "You have anything else?" I'm like, "Yes, <laughs> I have something way better than what I've been pitching to you." And then they read it and went, "Nah." <laughs> yeah, they went, eh, "We think the retro thing would get old really fast." This was Comedy Central. Um, oh wow! And then the Tick live action series, like that pilot happened like a kind of the same month as I w- did this thing like that Ben got his call for that thing and then it was like let's all go do that together so I kind of put it aside and it almost got developed actually by uh, Will Vinton Studios weirdly oh, enough wow. Yeah. wow like I, when I moved to LA to work on the tick like I got an agent and he's like alright I'll try to sell your pilot thing on the side and Will Vinton Studios optioned it and I went up to Portland to visit them. Were they going to do claymation? No, they wanted to. Oh. Uh, they wanted to bust into CG. Oh. Ah. 
And I was like, no, I really see this as a really crappy looking, like making fun of old Marvel cartoons kind of thing. But when I went up there and they showed me their CG reels, I was like, oh, wait a minute, that's way more subversive. Like, I'm, you know, the kind of bad on purpose thing already felt old to me. And I was like, oh, if you could make it beautiful, but really mean spirited and weird, like, that would be great. So it was like, oh, yeah, let's make a gorgeous, weird, you know, dark show that's funny and put it on like HBO or something. We would make television history. And then that didn't happen. So um, I just, I, I happened to pitch it to Adult Swim during a month when, you know, they had the money for three pilots that year and they had greenlit two and they hadn't found anything else they wanted to make. And they were like, yes, we'll do it. I just, you know, sent it to them and they called me and went, yeah, we want to do it. And I went, great. Uh, and we don't really have any notes. And I was like, oh, okay, really? great. Even better. Yeah, so yeah. Is, yeah. So is what we saw in the first episode or the pilot almost. pretty much what you wrote? Uh, almost. Uh, well, yes. It's, it's all what I eventually wrote. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and Doc came along at some point, too. Doc came along later. Um, he, we were sharing a studio at the time. Like I would just go there to draw because I lived in a one-bedroom apartment with a roommate. She had the living room. I had the bedroom. So like I needed a place to go work. And I just moved back from L.A. And I was pretty broke. So it was like you know, 150 bucks a month or something mm-hmm. to have a desk in a room with like mm-hmm. six other people who are all gone now. It's Doc and I are still in that same space. <laughs> no. Everybody's gone. We, we smoked them out. <laughs> like literally. Um, smoked them out. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, about else. a so week many before we started. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, all of it. Um, not the pot way. No, no. Um, but we literally smoked too many cigarettes and uh, <laughs> frightened them with our, weird relationship <laughs> or, or just constant da, 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 clicking with each other in, in the best of ways but um, a week before we started production on the pilot uh, I got a call and it was Mike Lazo the head of Adult Swim was finally involved and so uh, he went yeah I'm reading your thing and uh, second act super gay ass <laughs> he said, kind of, yeah. yeah, that's the kind of note I get from that's him, which is note. awesome. Yeah, because and uh, and he's the only person Did who ever gave us notes. No, it was like there were a, a couple of scenes, moments. He's like, I love you know, you you got me. I love the first act. I'm, I'm with you. It's all great. And then second act just gets super gay ass. <laughs> So, yeah, so I tried to get him to, you know. I have never gotten that note. No, but that's that's, that's the only note you get from him. Like, he goes, Yeah, you had me, you lost me, this part sucks. And so he leaves you to figure it out. He's not a, he was never a guy who was like, No, do this, you know, or take this stuff out. So I had to, uh, I had to punch it up like a week before we started production, and that was no big deal. Uh, there was like a very frightening moment in that conversation where he's like, yeah, I just, I just don't see a half-hour show here. This is more like one of our 11-minute ones. Yeah, I and like, I was told later that like the, you know, the development person who brought me in was like panicking. I was like, I, uh, I thought we were about to make... And she was apparently holding up a sign to him that said, we made a deal. The contract is for half an hour, you know. Uh, <laughs> So, what, yeah, what did they have on at that time? Because that was sort of it was really it was really early. I guess they had um, yeah they didn't the only like half hour stuff they had was, like, was stuff they had acquired. So I guess uh-huh. home movies would have been uh, sure. at, on at the time, and then 
God, I don't even know if they were running like Family Guy reruns yeah. yet, which are still the best rated thing on that network. <laughs> Pisses me off so much yeah. that like everything new they make, the biggest hit that they have yeah. that they is created there doesn't do as well as like the fifteenth <laughs> rerun of Family Guy, yeah. whatever season nine. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, but it's uh, yeah, that I was mean, a very easy process developing it. And so, uh, Family it's either Guy is uh, Cartoon Network's Watchmen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I'm going to do before Family Guy. That's going to be my new Single guy. That's my next thing. I'm spoiler. I'm staffing, I'm staffing up. That's why I'm in LA. <laughs> Um, but what you about guys before are they still... had that kid with the weird-shaped head? What happened then? <laughs> you guys are still sort of an outlier on the network, though, and not just because it's a half-hour show, but because, you know, it's not an extended sketch. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys, it's a well-plotted show. It's a well-structured show. Uh, what goes into, you know, making an episode, or, or at least the early stages of putting together an episode? Holy crap. Um, this is, I, you don't live here. This is the only chance I get I to talk yeah, to yeah. you. Uh, I'm in the middle of one right now. Like, I was writing one before I came here. Where, uh, we're like, we're nine, we're on the ninth script of a ten script order, and we are about two weeks late with it, and it's supposed to be our premiere episode, because we never write the premiere episodes first, for whatever reason. We want to be hot, we want to be loose, whatever, Uh, and so we've been writing all this crap with all these weird changes to the characters that nobody working on the show understands. They're like, so this character looks like this now? Yeah, we'll explain it in the premiere. You know, um, <laughs> and now we're trying to figure out how to do that because we're like, oh, you know, just writing the story of what happens the day after the finale and explaining all this crap we've been doing all this year for the first time. That's not a story. So, like, I'm actually kind of wrestling with the idea of what makes an episode right now again. But, um, well, good. Take it apart. Uh, normally, it starts with a, a, just a, some weird compulsion, you know. <laughs> Just like, oh, I really just want to do something. You know, just random stuff that clicks with you and you go, I want to make that joke. And then you build a whole episode <laughs> around it and then you throw that joke out. Yeah. That always happens. Yeah. Because yeah. it I never throw feels out three that scenes way. in every episode yeah. that I write because we always, I throw out a good 15 pages of stuff wow. for every episode. Yeah. Uh, wow. I always have this little runoff file. And so the three scenes are always the. Uh, Flight in the X-1 to the adventure always goes. The, um, the post-credits like epilogue scene always goes, and whatever the last scene was gets bumped there because I ran out of time. And the, whatever the joke scene that made me want to write the episode was. So, of course. Yeah. So uh, how, does, how does your... But I've got to write it all before I cut right. it. It's, oh, absolutely. That part sucks. The... Um... The commentary tracks uh, on... I, I only watched the first season, but are a fantastic You're not book. <laughs> no, I only watched the commentary track. Listen to the commentary tracks in the first season. Uh, but they're, they're a terrific look at how the show is put together and oh, what you no, guys... They really, really are. No, they no. really are. No, Doc yells at me every time I start talking about like the process. Like He just wants to talk about shit that happened to us when we were kids or <laughs> body but hair I feel like or that, you know, okay. movies we like. And know. this is going to be this is what I was going to ask is like this is your dynamic and mm. it clearly fuels the show yeah yeah I how mean that's how episodes together? get written yeah. too like we never we are the least professional writers it's just the two of, you writing the just the two of us yeah, oh, yeah. so awesome so we, we've all even South Park has like three other dudes yeah. 
I hear that now, but I, I feel like those guys well, are probably just really all over all that. The, <laughs> well, a friend of mine is on the is on the writing staff, or, or I don't know if he was this season, but he was the mm-hmm. last few. But it's really like a writing room where they all sit around and kick around ideas, yeah, and yeah. then Trey really writes. Yeah. And but, yeah, Bill Hader yeah, was Bill Hader, doing that because yeah. he he did some voices for us, and he was telling us. Oh about yeah, it. yeah, that's how I know. Yeah, yeah. So our writers' room is us uh, <laughs> never ever having. Official writers' meetings. Like, <laughs> this season actually is the closest we've come. Like we we actually wanted to kind of plot out our bigger stories. We knew we had two seasons, and we we're like, let's do some big stuff. Like what if we what do we keep forgetting to do in other seasons? Like who haven't we? What characters haven't we used in a while? What do you want to accomplish? Where do you want the main characters to be at the end of this season? And then what'll that do for next season? Like we have actually, it's weird that we actually plotted a lot of it out. <laughs> And that we managed to funnel it into all these stories that have nothing to do with it just because we were riffing on something and went, that's a story, and it has <laughs> nothing to do with our whole arc, but we'll figure out a way to squeeze one little <laughs> kernel into it. you have to do it, the so. before Family Guy episode. Of- <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't have any episodes left. <laughs> well, still. Get an extra one. It's special. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, when, when does the show, when does the next season premiere? Uh, January. Jan. Oh, yeah. wow. We, um, ju- we, like, just shipped the first or second awesome. one to Korea. Okay. But um, I don't know if I'm supposed to tell. Uh, we, we will have we one can cut on. It out later if we're, you can. We will have a Halloween special on, though. Okay. Oh, but the rest of the season will be. Nice. Yeah. Cool. cool. January. Good. We look forward to it. Um, Ed. We're going to talk about Captain America. Oh, we are? Yeah, we are. Because okay. I fucking love it. Oh, thank you. Uh, it, it really it got me back into comic books. Uh, it's, I love the stories. I love the way you tell them. You're you know, dipping into the rich history but making it your own. Uh, what was your approach to this character? How did you even come to get involved with this character? Because you've been writing it now for some time, too. Almost eight years. You can't years. hate it. No, I don't hate it at okay. all. <laughs> um, I mean, there are days where it feels like a job, but mostly it's been a, a good job. You know? um, it was a situation where I was leaving D.C., um, they had fucked with us on Gotham Central and and and. Uh, Did you guys read Gotham Central? Oh my god! Right, so good. I, I was not leaving like unamicably, but it was clearly like I'm gonna go try to be somewhere else for a while. Like I'd had a good run, I'd done some stuff I liked, but uh, Dan DiDio had 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 screwed me a couple times, right in the face. But at least he doesn't do it in the back, um, and I respect him for it. He had his—he had his—you know—he was the—he was the vice president of the company. He wanted to do some stuff, but I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go do some books at Marvel then. And and Brian Bendis is one of my oldest friends and knew that I was not going to be staying on a contract at DC, and I was still going to be doing Gotham Central and finishing up Sleeper. But he knew I was I was going to go freelance, and so he called me up. He said, "What do you want?" And I said, "Well, the only book that I, you know, because he's like, I'll, I'll call Joe tomorrow and tell him like this is what you're interested in." And I said, "Well, the only book I really would like to write is probably Captain America or Iron Fist. They're never going to do an Iron Fist book." <laughs> and um, and Captain America had just uh, gotten a new writer who was doing a bunch of stuff, and he said, "Oh no, that guy just quit because of <laughs> something." And and so they got Robert Kirkman's going to do like like four issues, and then they're looking for a new guy. And I was like, "Oh well." Well, never let me do what I want to do. And he's like, well, what do you want to do? I'm like, I want to bring Bucky back. And, and he was like, oh, well, let, let me talk to Joe. He didn't see that coming yeah. at all. And, and he, talked to, he called up Joe and, you know, 
Joe called me up and he said, hey, that's great. You want to bring Bucky back? He's like, we just had a huge fight about that at the last editorial retreat. Yeah. Axel and I really want to bring him back. Tom won't hear of it. It's like, if you convince Tom Brevoort <laughs> to, to do it, you, you can that's do it. Hilarious. And so, yeah, that was just, I'd always, uh, you know, this is, I'm such a comic nerd. This is the kind of my, my justification for being able to do it. This isn't like bringing back Len Stacy. This isn't like bringing back Uncle Ben. Those people died in continuity. Hmm. Bucky was the first retcon. <laughs> I was like, when I was like eight years old, Captain America and, and Bucky were like my favorite characters. I went to my first San Diego Comic Con when we lived in San Diego. And I had all the Captain America issues. I had all the tales of suspense. And I had issue 101 or 100 of Captain America, which was really the first issue of the modern Captain America. But I, for some reason, assumed that there was an issue 99 of Captain America that came out in the 40s uh-huh. where Cap and Bucky got captured by Zemo and blown up. And that never fucking happened. Like, Bucky was in Captain America comics until the 50s, and then when Jack wanted to bring Cap in, at, in the Avengers, Stan was like, yeah, but I don't want to have a kid sidekick. And so they came up with this story where Bucky got blown up, and that was like the retcon. And I was like, as a kid, I was like, wait, it didn't happen in a Marvel comic in continuity? Well, then it didn't happen. And so like my, my whole life from like age eight, I always thought, if I ever get Captain America, I'm bringing Bucky back. And, and you know, so it was literally the most comic nerdy kind of. Yes. But, but, you know, to Tom Brevoort's credit, he made me come up with a good story for it. It wasn't just that, you know, Bucky was in the next block of ice over. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and became a fascinating character, too. Yeah. I mean, He's they, Literally, uh, Marvel's most popular character since Wolverine and Deadpool. Wow. Like, as far as new, the Winter Soldier. That's wild. Like, to think that you could bring Bucky back and not only have people accept it, but kind of love it. He, I mean, we're doing a monthly series of the Winter Soldier now, and, you know, it's, it's kind of amazing. But the roots of that character came from me and Tom Brevoort talking about those old Captain America comics from the 40s where every cover was like, Cap and Bucky parachuting behind enemy lines and Cap's got his shield up and he's deflecting gunfire from below and Bucky's sitting there with a fucking machine gun like firing and with a big grin on his face. I am 16! This is a metaphor! He actually looked like he was like nine at the time on those comics. I moved him up to Suck it, Robin! There was an issue of like the young allies where where Bucky is like like got a flamethrower in one hand and like his, and like Toro's dropping an atom bomb on somebody and this is like the cover of the comic and and so these guys when people would like tell me well Captain America never used a gun and I'm like are you fucking kidding me when the comic was actually aimed at children and aimed as a propaganda tool there's an issue of Captain America where he picks up a stationary machine gun which you know you have to not a human, a human being couldn't pick it up. Captain America picks it up, puts it on his shoulder, and kills 300 Japs. <laughs> which he called them Japs, which is right. why I'm saying it that way. <laughs> Take that, Tojo, who I think was actually on the page, you know, maybe even suck it. <laughs> but literally, this is what the comics were actually coming out at the time. I'm like, no, he used a gun in like every fucking issue in the 40s, actually. He only stopped using a gun when, when you know, in the 60s, post comics code. Sure, that's fascinating. Know. But what kind of super soldier doesn't kill the enemy? He's, yeah, I mean, and that's, that's, that's what I love in the thing. movies. He's yeah. actually, like, you know, using a gun and a machine gun. It's like, of course he would. He's not gleefully killing people like he, <laughs> like he actually was in the 40s. He's not the punisher. <laughs> he's not the punisher. He's not a psychopath. Yeah, he's not a psychopath. But, but, yeah, it was just always a character that I, you know, I think because I grew up on military bases, 
but I'm a fairly, you know, left-leaning person. I felt like, you know, I, I kind of liked that Captain America was a guy who sort of idolized FDR and yet spent most of his adult life in the military. I thought he would not view anything from one extreme or the other and, and sort of be able to remove himself from those kind of political situations. And, and just a character I kind of thought was cool and, and wanted to, you know, do. And, and you're, uh, is there an end in sight to the story? Yeah. Is, do you, oh, okay. So you kind of know the story you set out to tell yeah. over these well, 10 years. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think I, you know, like Frank Miller said, he should have left after he did that issue of Daredevil where Matt Murdock digs up Elector's grave and finds that she's still dead. Like he, should, he, he said if he'd had balls, he would have left then. And I think, you know, there's times where I've thought, oh, I should leave after this storyline or I should leave after that storyline. But I just keep staying because I don't want to let anybody else do it. <laughs> but, you know, you can't stay forever. And, you know, there's, there's definitely, you know, uh, there, there's a, 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 fu- a final issue that, that I will write at some point in the, nearest fu- in the near future. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it'll... it'll it's weird. I mean, I've been doing it for almost eight years. Yeah. So that's a, that's a long ass. I mean, Grunwald, I think, is the only person who's written more than me, and I'll never defeat him. Like he's he did like 150 issues. I wouldn't wow. even want to try to write that many. But um, it's been a great. It's like gig. ten John Burns. Yeah. 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 Suck it, Burn. Um, <laughs> but uh, literally, it is. I mean, it's been a great gig, and it's just weird to be basically given utter freedom on on that book. Cool. You know, I've never had an editor say, "Oh, you can't do this, or you can't do that," other That's than amazing. that, "Oh, you can't kill Hawkeye because he's in the Avengers." Mm-hmm. It's like, "Oh, right, he's in the Avengers now." <laughs> now that you guys give won't it two let more kill years. Him. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. We have so much to talk about, and uh, I want to be able to get to questions, but uh, yes. I'm, in looking at this uh, Roots of the Swamp Thing collection, yes. it has a nice introduction by Len, uh, in which you talk about uh, the creation of Swamp Thing coming from a very personal place. Do you recall that? Yes, vaguely. <laughs> uh, tell us about the creation of that character. No, I was, well, this story itself, I came up with on the subway on my way to the office. <laughs> I was doing mystery stories for Joe Orlando at the time. And the idea just came to me on the train. Mm-hmm. And Joe bought it. And, we and had, what, was, what was that basic idea like that you went in and told them? Well, I, I, that's what I would do. I, I'd show up once or twice a week with ideas and go, how about this one? He'd go, yes, how about this one? Two yes. words, swamp thing. thing. Yeah. Well, it, actually, it got Swing its name from, <laughs> from the obvious. I kept ref- well, when I got the assignment, I kept referring to that story as that swamp thing I'm working on. <laughs> that's how it got named. Awesome. That's literally how it got named. That's how that '70s show got named. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. Uh, but you know, I, I got the idea approved, and I was at a party that weekend. I went on Long Island at, in Lake Grunkunkama at Mars Housewarming. You know, and. Bernie Wrightson, who's a buddy, had just brought up with a girlfriend of his, and he was all melancholy. And I said, you know, I just wrote a story that's kind of about romance and stuff and people's relationships. And he said, really, tell me about it. And I told him that story. And he said, oh, I want to draw that. I said, be my guest. Uh, I don't imagine Joe's going to say no. And Joe went, Gee, best artist yes. in comics, please yeah. draw my story. Yes. <laughs> you so, are welcome to. Yes, exactly. So that's how we got to go ahead. And the book sold like a son of a bitch. It outsold everything else that month. It outsold and that was Super in the days Wars. when they just shipped a ton and they gauged sales based on how many got returned, right? Yeah. 
That's but so it was awesome. the best-selling book that outsold everything. I wish we had that day. What do you DC think people week, responded to in that book? I, well, the emotional aspect of it. That's a great I cover, think. too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was Wheezy, God bless her, on yeah. the cover back. Oh, uh, yeah. <sighs> there wasn't the male in comics. You didn't have the hats for Louise Simonson. <laughs> the Helen Mirren of comics. Yes, she was. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the book sold so well, they came back to us and said, well, we'd like to do a regular monthly book. And Bernie and I were, you know, in our early 20s and full of integrity. Uh, and we said, no, 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 we, we, don't, we don't want to spoil the story. It's a great story. If we do another one, we'll, we'll, we'll take away what makes this one special. And it took me a year for me to go, or we could just start all over again, which is what finally happened. On a Saturday morning, I woke up and went, wait, we don't have to do a sequel. Let's just start from scratch and do the same sort of thing with a new story. Hmm. And so I called Joe Orlando on the weekend and said, why didn't you guys do that with Before Watchmen? (laughs) You're not helping me at all. I'm sorry. I'm stepping on your story. (laughs) And so I, uh, Joe said, that sounds great. I said, let me call Bernie and see if I can talk him into it. And I called Bernie and he said, oh, yeah, that would work. That was in a year? A year. And, and uh, we called Joe back and said, okay, we're cool. And he said, great, we're on the schedule. Let's get going. Oh and we God. did. That's hilarious. And did you ever feel, I mean, sort of the same question of you were going to run out of stories with this character? Well, I, I've run out of stories with almost every character I've ever written, except imagine. Batman. I, I, could, I could have stayed on Batman until I died. Wait, oh, Eddie, you're shaking your head. How many, no, I'm just, oh. how many issues of Batman did you write? Oh, I don't know. I, uh, about three or four years worth. Wow. Uh, and then I edited the book for another four or five years after that. Why did you leave Swamp Thing? Uh, well, when Bernie left, Ber- Bernie, was, you know, it's funny enough, it all comes back to women. Everything was back to women. <laughs> uh, Bernie was dating a, a, a young woman after the fact who was convincing him that it was all his reason the book was successful. I had little to do with it. And I got sick. And so... She allowed him to take the opportunity to go in and go, I'll, I'll, I'll do the next issue by myself to keep it going. Because that way, that way he could prove it was all him. This and is where he, freelancer paranoia comes from. Never get sick. And I, you know, I got sick. I got well much quicker than, than they expected. And I said, well, it's a lovely story, except... And the editor and me even then went through a long list of everything he'd gotten wrong. Oh, wow. And Joe agreed with me. I said, look, there's still time for me to rewrite it. I'll change the story. But Bernie was so embarrassed that he left the book. And without him, I was not having as much fun. I I got out. I just blanked on his name. Oh, shame on me. Uh, He's in there. The guy who who wrote through the other three. Esteban Morota. Oh, yeah. Beautiful artwork. The art was great. But I just wasn't having quite the same fun. And so after three issues, I said, you know, maybe I should just go too. And so I left the book. And the nicest thing that ever happened was Paul Levitz coming to me after the fact and said, I just want you to know I went through the figures. When Bernie left the book, the sales didn't drop one copy. When you left the book, they plunged. Wow. And I went, wow. So I was responsible. Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> well, you were the king, man. Well, I just assumed, I mean, come on, me, Bernie writes and doing what he was doing. I yeah, that, was a, that was the weirdest comic coming out then. Yeah. And it was like, it was... I, 
you know, it's one of those things. I remember when I was getting into comics as a teenager when you could go to comic book stores and get back issues. Those were, like, prized things that you had to hunt down. That and, like, the uh, Marshall Rogers, Engelhart Batmans. Sure. And they were all these short runs, and I always kept thinking, why the fuck did these guys quit? <laughs> these were great. I assumed that they didn't sell, you know, but then they were apparently amazing selling. They, they so well. I, now I get it. Like, because, you know, when Lark left Gotham Central, you know, we kept doing it for a while, but it just wasn't the same. Yeah. You know, when you have that synergy I, I, with an artist, I, I it's had the rare, best time you know? with Bernie. We 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 finish each other's sentences. The funny thing is, too, you're talking about the the Engelberg Rogers Batman. I took yeah. over for Engelberg. Yeah. Uh, that's what they lured me back. In fact, at DC, they <laughs> gave me that book, and I did the first two issues, the only two issues. Jim with, No, with Marshall. Didn't you do some Jim Apparel? Oh, I did a lot of stuff with Jim later on. Yeah, you but, did but, uh, Batman Murderer. Yes, that murderer. Was, that was my, first, the, the un- my first Batman comic. The, the, the untold, <laughs> the untold origin of the Batman. I did with Jim as well. Oh, I love everything. that one. Yeah. But the funny thing was, after two issues, I got called into Joe Orlando's office, and I said, "What's up?" And he said, "I don't know how to tell you this, but uh, Marshall doesn't like your scripts. <laughs> he really is not doing." You know, and I went, "Oh, great! I've come. I've quit all the top books at Marvel. I've come back to DC <laughs> to do this book. I'm about to get my ass fired on it." And I said, so, so, so what do we do now? He says, I don't know. Who do you want to replace him with? <laughs> and I went, what? He wow. says, no, no, you're, you're, you're writing the book. If he's got a problem, he's leaving. Not you. Holy shit. <laughs> wow. And so I went, thank you, career. And, and yeah. <laughs> went on from there. It was odd. Uh, let's, uh, before we turn up, we're going to have time for like one question. I'm sorry, guys. Will you all come back if we have these guys back? <laughs> all right. Uh, not you. <laughs> Plan it around your schedule. I'll see you. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Wolverine, okay, the creation, let's. the creation of, and then uh, the new X Men also. Uh, the new X Men was an idea that came before Wolverine. Really? Weirdly enough, there had been a lot of discussion in the Marvel offices about the fact that a lot of the titles were selling very well in various countries overseas, and somebody thought maybe if we did a book aimed at these countries, we'd sell even better. So for months and months, there was discussions around the office of bringing back the X-Men, which had pretty much flopped, Mm -hmm. as an international team of superheroes and having heroes from the countries where the books were selling. Uh, When I was asked to do Wolverine, and that was from Roy Thomas. Roy, I was doing Brother Voodoo at that point, among things. And they were all set in in the Caribbean, and I like to write accents. So they all had Caribbean accents. Did you create Brother Voodoo? Yes. Not the name. Everything but the title. Uh, (laughs) Everything but the title. What would you have called him? Barry Voodoo. (laughs) Just brother Uh, is a little. Uncle Voodoo. (laughs) We changed him to Dr. Voodoo. Yes, I I thought was ridiculous. Dr. Voodoo, Voodoo Doctor. (laughs) Which doctor? That doctor over there. Which doctor? (laughs) But uh, Roy wanted to see how he would do a Canadian accent. He said, I have a name, Wolverine. Come up with a character to go with it. I'd like to see you write a Canadian (laughs) accent. So I did research. Uh, Wolverine, short, furry creatures with razor-sharp claws and incredible tempers will take on creatures ten times their size. I went, that's easy. And there's the character. Uh, I decided to make him a mutant on the off chance someone else who ever ended up with the X-Men book would have a a Canadian mutant if they wanted to use one. Wow. I didn't know it was going to be me at that point. I actually thought it was going to be somebody else. But... They How offered far me the same. That was the annual. Oh, about six months, eight oh, months. Oh, okay, so the same year. Okay. Yeah, I think it was. 
And that's how Wolfrey ended up in X-Men. And the rest of them came from a book that Dave Cockrum, God rest him, uh, had. He used to love designing characters. So he had these notebooks for all characters he designed. And we said, well, let's sit down with the notebook. Maybe we can find appropriate characters. Oh, wow. So we found Storm and Colossus and Nightcrawler and Thunderbird and a couple of others we all thought would be great characters and went ahead with the book. book came out, at which point it dawned on us the whole idea originally was to find characters from countries where the books were really silly. No one had ever told us what countries those were. <laughs> so we had simply made up whatever countries worked Turns for us. Transylvania, Africa. Out, no, no, no. It, it, it worked for us, so we just did whatever we thought was right. That's hilarious. Um, all right, let's take a couple of questions from you guys. If you have a question, come down to the aisle, and I will give you the microphone. I will hold the microphone to your head. Yes, we don't um, trust you people with electronics. Keep your questions brief, please. Uh, yes or no and, questions. Uh, yeah, yes or no questions. Questions are always good. True or false. Uh, does anyone have questions? True or false? Yeah, we'll take that. Ah, there's one of them. Truth or dare, we'll do. Oh, we could do multiple choice. Wait, I can come up with multiple choice. Oh, I like multiple answer. choice. Yeah, multiple choice. Let me hold it. All of you have $1,000 a page. Uh, just uh, for, for everyone, because uh, you had mentioned before that you were cutting back on your workload to work on other scripts and things for other mediums. What is everyone working on besides what you're currently working on? That's a great question. Yeah, I, I'm glad you got to it. Thank you. What are you guys working on? Len, start with uh, you. Uh, well, aside from Azamandias and the Crimson Corsair, I'm writing episodes of Ben 10, the animated series. Wow. A show I love. I've done like seven of them so far. And I'm also writing for the new Beware of the Batman uh, CG animated series that starts wow. on uh, Cartoon Network. Not this fall, but next fall, I think, because CG takes some time. Yeah. So I'm, I'm doing all those things. I'm also doing a story for this year's Doctor Who annual. Oh, wow. For uh, ADW. You love accents. Huh? You love accents. I, well, it's not, <laughs> it's not, this was a weird case. Uh, somebody a couple of weeks ago asked me, is there ever a character you haven't written you wanted to? And I said the time, no, I guess not. And then afterwards, I said, oh, that's not true. I love Doctor Who. I'd love to do a Doctor Who story. And at... Anaheim at WonderCon, I'm having dinner with Joe Hill and some of the folks from IDW. And, and Joe looks at me and says, it's the same question, is there any character uh, you've ever not written that you would like to write? And I said, yes. And he said, who? I said, exactly. Thank <laughs> <laughs> God. And the great part no, what, was... What, which character? <laughs> yeah, the great part was that... Uh, Brother who? You, <laughs> Brother Who. Great answer. Brother Who, the Who Brother? Chris Ryle, who's one of the editors at IDW, looked at me and said, you yeah, know, we can make that happen. And I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, yes. So I'm doing a story for the annual. I asked my favorite title ever. It's called In Fez Station. In Fez Station. Yes, if you're watching the show. Nice. Yeah, because Fezes are cool. Uh, Brubaker, what are you working on? I am uh, just finishing up uh, the screenplay adaption for Coward, which was the first criminal book. Um, that I read it thanks. last night. It was great. Oh, yeah. oh, thanks. I read that whole fucking hardcover. <laughs> oh, wow. Awesome. Oh, I thanks. Um, yeah, David Slade is uh, attached to direct that, and I just hung out with him the other night cool. to make sure he still is, and he is. Because <laughs> um, he's directing the pilot for Hannibal pretty soon. Um, yes, indeed. Uh, and I've uh, got a couple of TV things that are too early to really talk about. Um, and writing Fatal at, uh, for Image yeah. for Sean Phillips. Um, thank you. 
That's like our best-selling thing that we've ever done. It's totally crazy. It's like we're overnight success after 12 constant years of putting out material. Um, and uh, doing The Winter Soldier at Marvel, which is, you know, pretty soon will be my only monthly, you know, mainstream comic. Um, and I'll, I'm developing some other creator-owned stuff and really just kind of getting... I think, you know, Len, Len will probably confirm, concur with this. Uh, the work-for-hire grind of comics and the production schedule of it, it just starts, it wears you down over time. I don't have anything against it. You know, I, I've had great experiences at Marvel and DC with editors and artists, and, and you know, it's, it, it pays wonderfully, you know, compared to not getting paid to write. Yes, that's true. Um, it, it pays a lot better than working at a bookstore, which is what I was doing when I started, you know, writing comics. And I'm pretty much incapable of doing anything but telling stories, so... Um, you know, conveniently, you know, we're at a time period when comics is, is read by pretty much all of pop culture. So um, really just kind of, I, I'm not, I have no plans to quit comics. I just, you know, I've, I've, I've come to a point where I feel like I don't want to do a whole heck of a lot of the, the, the monthly grind on the work for hire stuff. And, and, you know, conveniently don't need to. I mean, I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't piss on it. You know, I, I, it's, it's it's done quite well for me, but I just, you know, want to pursue some other opportunities before sure. I get too old, too. Hey. Good. Great. Uh, Chris, what are you working on? Uh, kinda, Besides this episode. Kinda, yeah, yeah, exactly. Kind of nothing. Um, before Family Guy, yeah. obviously. That's our thing. Yeah, we nothing official, single, yeah. I, I, guy. We've talked about some stuff. That's about as far as everything We're gets. in the very early stages yeah. of talking about some things. Some friends of mine and I accidentally made up what might be an awesome like AMC drama thing the other night. That's like amazing. somebody made a joke and went, no, but for real. That could totally work. So like maybe when we get done, I can't tell you. Oh, okay. <laughs> no. Oh. But uh that's the next I don't know. Show. So maybe when we're done like right now, like I direct the show about ten hours a day and then I go home and write. So when I'm done writing I'll get a weekend off maybe. Yeah. Is that why you're uh, on and then directing? maybe I'll Yeah, like we're recording oh, cool. you know, ah. the LA based actors oh, awesome. this week. So Good. Well, we look yeah, forward so to maybe the season else. and to the next I don't know. <laughs> yeah. uh, please give a round of applause to our panelists, Jackson Public, Ed Brubaker, and Len Wein. Thanks to everyone here at Nerdist Industries and Meltdown Comics, and to 826LA and to Dan Byrne for doing our theme song. Thanks for coming. Now leaving Nerdist.com.